Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 20. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bread, nor bag, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And wherever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are going to go and buy food for these people. There are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Well, thank you very much, Rohan, for reading, and thank you, Sheila, for praying for me. Much appreciated. Um, please do keep that passage open in front of you. We're always eager here that you're able to check that what we're saying through the microphone is actually what God's saying through the Bible. So please do be checking along. Um, uh, and I will, I will lead us in prayer as we look to Luke 9. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, whether we're new to church or have been coming for years, we pray by the help of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, with more confidence than we have before. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a real joy to be sharing this section of um, Luke's Gospel with us this morning. Uh, I didn't necessarily feel like that at the start of the week. This is a passage that actually puzzled me for, for a number of days, um, but I've now become convinced it's one of the most important passages in the whole of Luke and Acts as a pair. Acts is the sequel to Luke's Gospel. Why do I say that? Why do I think it's important? Well, chapter 9, the whole of chapter 9 in Luke, is a turning point in the Gospel, a big turning point, actually. It's, it's a literal turning point because Jesus is about to turn and head somewhere. 
Um, If you look uh, just after our passage, verse 22, uh, Jesus announces in verse 22 that he's going to have to die. He's going to be rejected and killed uh, by the authorities in Jerusalem. That's a big moment. And then if you turn over the page to verse 51 of chapter 9, so now we're on page 868, verse 51 When the days drew near, verse 51, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And in verse 51, he turns in that direction and heads on that bearing. And actually, that that then covers Luke's gospel from chapter 9 all the way through to chapters 19 and 20 when he arrives in Jerusalem. It's actually the section we're going to be covering in our small groups over the next two terms on the way to Easter And we're going to be on the road with Jesus, following him on this journey to the cross and finding out what it means to follow him. So the end of chapter 9 is going to be that big turn towards Jerusalem. And and therefore, the whole of chapter 9 is a kind of summarizing and concluding the big points we need in place before we set off on the journey. And today's big point is the question, who is Jesus? That's the first and biggest issue we need to kind of consolidate before we set off on this journey. Who is Jesus? I wonder if you noticed that question came up twice in the reading. Did you notice that? So um, it's there in verses 7 to 9, and then it comes again later in verses 18 to 20. And both times, you don't just get the question, you get a little opinion poll, uh, a kind of description of what other people are thinking about Jesus' identity. Let me read those with you. Um, Look at verse 7. Herod, uh, who's not um, a pleasant character, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening with Jesus and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Here's the opinion poll. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this Jesus that everyone's talking about? Okay, that's seven to nine. Then look at the end of the passage, verses 18 to 20. Because Jesus brings up the same issue, this time with his disciples, verse 18. It happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, and this might be familiar, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, we're going to unpack Peter's answer later at the end. But I hope that's enough to show you that Jesus' identity is the big deal here, the big question. Who is Jesus and what do you make of him? Where does all this evidence that we've been seeing over the last few chapters point That's the big question this morning, and the Bible would actually say that is the big question of life. The most important question there is, actually. The most important thing we could give our time and our mental energy to consider. Who is Jesus? It's important because our eternity hangs on the answer. It's actually the question that's at the gates when we face God on Judgment Day. What did you make of Jesus? Did you trust him for forgiveness, the forgiveness he offers? It's the big question. That means if you're looking in on Christian things this morning, 
Maybe you're just trying out church, kind of seeing what we do. You're very welcome. It's a good morning to be here because Jesus Christ sits at absolutely the center of everything we believe and do as a church. Actually, reading through one of the accounts of his life, like we are on Sundays, is a great way to investigate that key question. Over the last few chapters, Dr. Luke, um, who, who was a physician, has kind of become an investigative historian. He's been interviewing the eyewitnesses and recording a whole set of events and miracles. Jesus doing extraordinary things to reveal who he is. So we've had him calm a raging sea, heal a desperately sick woman that no doctor could help, um, uh, bring back to health an uncontrollably demonized man, and even raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. So in some ways, today now, is, it's conclusion time. Seen the evidence? How do you explain it? How do you explain multiply attested eyewitness reports of utterly impossible things? Who is this Jesus? So it's good if you're just inquiring to Christian things. But actually, I just want to say to the Christians in the room, which I guess is most of us, before you zone out and think, oh, okay, I've heard this talk before. This is the who is Jesus talk. (laughs) This is good for newcomers and inquirers. Well, let me just explain why I was initially confused by this passage and why I'm now amazed by it. You see, who is Jesus only describes half of what's going on in the passage, only actually covers half of the material in the passage. Luke is actually weaving together two threads here. There's the who is Jesus thread, we've seen that, and then there's another thread, a thread about the disciples teaming up with Jesus, the disciples joining in with Jesus' mission and learning to depend on him as they do that. Let me say that again, it's important. The other half of the passage is the disciples joining in with Jesus' mission and learning to depend on him as they do so. Now, I put a diagram on the handout to try and help to make it more obvious, but actually something's gone wrong and <laughs> on the right-hand side, the boxes are the wrong way around. It should, should be 9, 7 to 9 at the top and then 9, 18 to 20. So that may just make things far more confusing. But the basic idea is, so don't look at the, the diagram if it doesn't help, but basically, verses 1 to 6, the disciples are on, on mission with Jesus. And then we jump to Herod, verses 7 to 9, and ask the question, who is Jesus? And then we're back. The disciples come back to Jesus, the team's reunited, and they end up being involved in his mission and the feeding of the 5,000. They're on mission with Jesus. And then, verses 18 to 20, we jump back to the question, who is Jesus? Do you see that? Even without the diagram, hopefully it makes sense. We're interweaving these two themes. We shouldn't be surprised that Luke has a careful structure. He told us up front that he was writing an orderly account. We shouldn't be surprised that he wants to give us certainty about Jesus. He told us up front that's what he was writing for. But I think it is striking combining these two things. Because here's the point, this is point one. When we're involved in Jesus' mission, we need to know for certain who he is. Let me say that again. When we're involved in Jesus' mission, like the apostles are here, we need to know for certain who he is. That's what Luke's doing in switching back and forth between these two ideas. Now, I say, say when we are involved in mission, because although this chapter is just about the 12 apostles, like Jesus' official spokesman, the, the initial team, 
As Luke and Acts go on, the team is going to get bigger and bigger until it includes all of us who are Christians. So uh, in a couple of chapters' time, Jesus will send out 72 uh, people to, to proclaim forgiveness, share the good news. By the end of the, the book and into Acts, the whole church is sent out with the good news to take it to the ends of the earth. So this is just the first of those kind of concentric circles of people involved in spreading the good news. And Luke wants us to know that when we're involved in that, we need to know for certain who is this Jesus. Let's just think about why we would need to know for sure who is Jesus. What do you reckon? What would your ideas be? I guess really simply, we might just say, well, obviously, how are you going to tell people about Jesus if you're not actually sure who he is? If you're not clear on who he is, how could you share that with anyone else? I think that's a good reason. I think it's in Luke's gospel. But I think it's next week, not this week. Just look at verse 21, just after our passage. In verse 21, Peter's just realized Jesus is the Christ of God, the King. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. They're not ready to to, to share the full gospel because they don't yet understand the King has to die So it's definitely true. We would need to know Jesus properly to share him accurately. And we're going to get on to that once we get on to seeing that the king has to die. But that's next week, not this week. So what's this week about? Maybe we think, well, the cost of publicly speaking about Jesus is so high in this world. The kind of world where there are people like Herod around. And what we hear about Herod in... um, Uh, in verse 9, is that the last person who told him he needed forgiveness, who needed to turn around and trust Jesus, the last person who told him that, he beheaded. And it's not an exaggeration or melodramatic to say there are lots of countries in the world where exactly that kind of violent threat hangs over Christians who speak up about Jesus. In fact, Jesus, if you look to verse 22, again from next week, but verse 22, Jesus is, sorry, verse 23, Jesus is going to say, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever follows me needs to be kind of willing to lose their life. So there's definitely going to be a cost. And maybe we think, okay, I need to know who Jesus is so that I can keep going despite the cost. Absolutely true. Absolutely, Luke, but that's next week. So what's going on in this passage? Why in this passage do the apostles need to know for certain who Jesus is? Well, this is point two, and this is is the thing that's kind of blown my mind this week. Jesus wants us to learn to depend on him, not ourselves, when we're on mission with him. That's, I think, the the key contribution of the first bit of chapter 9. We need to learn to depend on Jesus, not ourselves. And the more we understand who he is, the more we will depend on him, not ourselves. To see that, let's go back to the start of the passage, and we'll work through these sections about the disciples on mission with Jesus. So let's have a look at verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6. Now, in verse um, 1 and 2, Jesus uh, finally kind of lets the disciples off the lead and sends them out to share in his business. He he chose them back in uh, chapter 
chapter 6, and he's been equipping them ever since. And now in verse 1, he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So verse 1, Jesus is equipping them with his own authority, his own power, the kind of power and authority we've seen, this extraordinary power he's displayed in the last few chapters. Then in verse 2, he commissions them with his message and his mission. Verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Remember Jesus' manifesto back in chapter 4, I've come to preach good news to the needy. And now they're included in his mission. Then you get verse 3, which is a bit odd. You see, in verse 3, Jesus is explicit that they should pack light. Or not really pack at all. Not pack a load of kit, verse 3. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Why is he saying that? Well, I think the point is, don't be self-sufficient. Don't take supplies in your own tent or even the money you might, need to, to, you might need to buy whatever you lack. No, he says, I'm going to send you. On this first mission trip, I'm going to send you out without your own resources. You're going to have to rely on God to provide through others. And so off they go. Verse 6, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Off they go. They do Jesus' work in Jesus' power with not a penny in their pocket or a backpack to their names. You see the point about dependence? This first mini-mission trip is to, designed to teach them to depend on him, to not take the extra resources, not be self-sufficient, because I'm going to work my power and authority through you. Now, it's worth saying the apostles here do have a, a very particular special role at a particular time. Not every detail about their mission trip is supposed to come across to the church now. In fact, even in Luke's gospel, with them, he gives different instructions in chapter 22, much later, at the, at the Last Supper. He says, okay, from now on, you are going to need money and a rucksack um, and even um, have a sword with you. So we shouldn't read too much into the details as a kind of blueprint for all Christian service. But we should get the big principle Jesus is teaching, which is we depend on him when we do his mission, not our own resources. In fact, in Luke 22, when he changes the, the instructions for the next mission, he actually says, do you remember chapter 9? Listen to this. He says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. Luke 22, 35, if you want to look at it later. The point is this, we need to depend on Jesus when we're about his mission. And it connects with the identity question. Because the more we realize who he is, whose team we are on, who's standing at our back, well, the more we'll depend on him, not ourselves. Okay, that's verses 1 to 6. I hope you're still with me. If, if not, jump back on board. Because in verse 10... Uh, we get another, another um, chance to see the disciples on, on mission with Jesus, joining the team. Uh, so verse 10, they return to Jesus, and he gives them a breather, a rest, and then the crowd arrives, and so it's preaching time again. By verse 11, the mission is back on. Jesus is sharing the good news. The team of disciples are there with him. But then in verse 12, something really striking happens. 
Because the disciples tell Jesus, we need to abort. We need to abort the mission for the day. Just look at it, verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. They're saying to Jesus, look, enough's enough. At least for one day, we've got to abort. We've got to pause the mission. We've got to stop proclaiming the kingdom for now. We just don't have the resources to continue right now. We can't turn this into an all-nighter or a multi-day mission. It's the wilderness. I mean, there's no accommodation. There's no food. There's no resources out here. We need to abort. That's why, if you're looking at the outline, right at the top of the outline, I decided not to do it as an introduction, but right at the top of the outline, I've put the sentence, mission abort, mission abort, we don't have the resources. Just to say, that's not a prophecy about the building redevelopment, or or it's not a plea for more Sunday club leaders, um, or something else around kind of church life. We often feel like that, which is striking. But I'm not, I'm not kind of trying to rustle up resources. Or more seriously, I didn't write that sentence about Afghanistan. Although I think Afghanistan and what's been going on exactly illustrates the idea. I don't know about you, Jesse and I have found the news absolutely harrowing over the last few weeks. On Tuesday, our, our church monthly prayer meeting around the table, we were praying for Afghanistan, and a number of us were in tears just thinking about the most vulnerable in the land and what they're facing. It's utterly grim. And it is a stark example of a mission having to stop through lack of resources, especially from the UK side. I mean, once the mighty US army says it's not going to be around, well, we just can't carry on. We've got to abort. We need to get out of here. You can imagine them thinking to themselves, we don't have the resources to stay safe in a hostile environment. We don't have the resources to save the people we're trying to rescue. We just can't do it anymore. We need to give up. We need to go home. Mission abort. We don't have the resources. Now that's true of Kabul 2021. But I wrote it about the disciples in verse 12 of Luke 9. I mean, they may only be saying, let's, let's call it a night for one, one day. Let's come back another time. But the basic point is the same. We don't have the resources to keep this going. And I'm, I don't think I'm making it up, because look at the way Jesus draws attention to the point in verse 13, when he says to them, you give them something to eat. To which they say, well... Hang on, we've, we've no more than five loaves and two, two fish. We've got one small packed lunch. Do you see the point again? We don't have the resources. Have you seen the crowd that needs salvation, needs feeding? We are nothing like sufficient for this task. And so they think, nothing else for it. We've got to abort. Send the people off. Send them elsewhere. Get them buying supplies. We can share the good news another day. Let's abort. But of course, they're forgetting who is with them. They're forgetting whose mission it is that they're joined in with. They're forgetting who is on the team in Jesus Christ. 
I don't know if they've just don't know for certain who he is. Maybe they still have doubts. I don't know if they've just not grasped the scale of his power. It'd be strange because they've seen so many miracles, extraordinary miracles of Jesus bringing hope and life and healing in the most desperate of situations. Last week, we saw him rolling back danger, disease, desperation, death. He's got limitless power in himself to fix things. And of course, in the mission trip in verses 1 to 6 that they'd been on, well, they had no resources. Jesus made sure of that and yet still experienced his power to save people working through them. But despite all that, they really are telling Jesus, we've got to abort the mission. We just don't have resources to provide for this kind of crowd. And into that situation, Jesus then teaches them that while they may not have resources in themselves, they really do have all they need for mission in Jesus. Let's just follow it through and see what happens. So verse 12, and the day's getting old. They're saying to Jesus, we've got we to gotta stop this. We've got to send them away. Jesus says, verse 13, you give them something to eat. They say, we haven't got enough. No, not got the resources. And then verse 14, for there are about 5,000 men and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves. And look at this. He gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Turned out the disciples were able to feed the crowd. From the infinite, life-giving, life-saving power of Jesus. It's an absolutely extraordinary miracle. Massive power, abundant provision, way more than was needed. Way more than they started with. The disciples just needed to realize whose team they were on. Who was with them. They needed to know for certain, who is this Jesus? Now, in a moment, in point three, we'll get to what specifically this shows about Jesus, this feeding miracle. But I do just want to pause and apply this principle to us. Because um, I wonder if we do ever feel like mission abort, we don't have the resources. This morning at the first service, Jay was um, sharing a bite size which... Uh, reminded us that all of the church is involved in Jesus' mission, to reach out with his good news of forgiveness and salvation. But I wonder if there are ever times, individually or collectively as a church, where we think to ourselves, not right now. I just haven't got it in me. This year is not a good year to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We haven't got it in us as a church family. Ever felt like that? It's not the right time to be openly known as a Christian at, light, at work. I'm not sure I've got the strength for that, the courage to cope with what might come back. It's not really the time to get to know neighbors or invite them to church. I could never ask someone to read the Bible. I mean, who am I? There's no way. I don't have the courage, the, the energy, the authority, the clarity, the, the winsomeness, the cleverness if they come back with questions. There's no way that I could be someone who has an eternal effect on anyone else. No way someone could be saved through my hands and my words. I think there are definitely times, I know I have times when I feel like that as an individual Christian, and I think there are times we feel like that as church families too. 
Just think about the, the last 18 months, the, the pandemic. It has been so hard to think, how do we get the message out in a pandemic? In lockdown especially, so much effort to reinvent how do we do church in these circumstances. So complex, trying to think, how do we socialize with anyone? Uh, colleagues or friends or neighbors who don't know Jesus. Really draining to still engage with people when work life and, and, and life itself is exhausting and full of health anxiety. Easy to think, abort. Abort the mission. At least till it's over. We don't have the resources today. Actually, looking forwards, I think it might be an even stronger temptation over the coming 12 months. See, the pandemic still hasn't gone away. Life is still complex. And we're looking at an upcoming building redevelopment with all the disruption and added work that takes, all the distraction. And on top of that, thanks to the COVID stress, lots of us are weary. We are just physically, mentally, emotionally tired, much more so at the start of an academic year than we would be. So it's easy to be daunted by what lies ahead and just think, Jesus, we need to abort. <laughs> Give us a year off. We don't have the resources. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we're, we're kind of gung-ho and never rest, never recover when we're exhausted. We've got to recognize we are creatures. We need sleep and food and rest. In fact, even in Luke 9, did you notice this? Verse 10, Jesus took the mission team apart for a rest. He knew that we need a rest. He doesn't expect us to push beyond our creaturely boundaries. And of course, I'm not saying we, we just ignore things like budgets and, and buildings and needing enough ministry leaders before we launch a new area. It's wise to plan and to think about the long haul in serving Jesus. Interestingly, in the next chapter, one of the applications Jesus gives is to pray for more workers to be raised up in the harvest field. So it's not always that I must do more. Sometimes dependence looks like praying to Jesus to raise up others. But with all those caveats, I am still asking us the question, are we ever tempted to draw back from the mission Jesus has given us when we feel our weakness? When we're aware of either the sheer scale of the task in front of us, the, the masses across the world, the, the, the thousands in the city of Edinburgh, even up, up and down Morningside High Street, the crowds... And just think, who are we? Who am I to make any dent? We haven't got the resources. To which Jesus says, who do you think I am? Do you know who I am? I mean, I get this quite often, actually. I feel, I feel overwhelmed often by ministry or by the spiritual battle or by the scale of the need. I don't have the courage or the strength or the power to share the gospel. Jesus says exactly to me what he says to Peter and to you. Do you know who I am yet? Do you realize who you're dealing with? Do you realize it's my mission? You're joining my team. And I've got more than enough resources to keep you going spiritually, physically, motivationally, unitedly, in power and purpose. As you live and speak for me, I will provide the power and provision you need. You don't need to grab the extra bag, the sandals, the staff. I will be with you. You don't need to send the crowd elsewhere. 
I'll provide through you. Okay, that's our second point. And it's why we need to know who Jesus is, so that we learn to depend on him and not ourselves when we're involved in mission. And of course, in this extraordinary feeding miracle, Jesus does prove himself to be dependable. And it is extraordinary, absolutely massive scale miracle. And it is worth pointing out, I mean, it's probably obvious, but just to point out, uh, this is not a promise that Jesus will supply our catering needs. It would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, at the moment, we're trying to work out how to do food at church events. Uh, and beyond that, we're, we're um, hopefully planning for a kitchen in the redevelopment. It'd be nice not to have any of that. You just bring a packed lunch and pray and boom, enough food for everyone. But actually, as with all the miracles we've been looking at in this, this last section of Luke, Jesus is making a specific point about who he is and the salvation he's going to offer. So there's a deliberate um, bigger picture with this feeding miracle. Now, we're going to do this fairly quickly, so just uh, tune in for five more minutes. I know there's a lot to process already, but um, some Old Testament bells should be ringing when we see massive feeding miracle in the desert, in the wilderness. This is not the first time there's been an abundant feeding miracle. Though actually, I think more than one bell should be ringing. So firstly, the prophet Elijah once met a widow who was down to her last shred of oil and flour, and he miraculously provided enough um, to, to, to have an unlimited home baking supply. More significantly, though, when God rescued Israel from Egypt, they were kept alive, traveling through the wilderness with manna through the prophet Moses. And so this miracle should get us thinking, whoa, who is this? Like, like Elijah, but bigger. Like Moses, but bigger. I'm sure we should be thinking that because do you remember the opinion polls we heard twice earlier in the reading? Verse 8, who do people think Jesus is? Well, verse 8, Herod said, some say Elijah has appeared, others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Or verse 19, the disciples say, well, it could be John the Baptist, or others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. People are realizing we've not seen miracles on this scale. This is like Elijah or like Moses back in the day. Except it's not like them, it's much bigger than them. Elijah fed one widow. Moses stood back while manna came from heaven. But Jesus, he gets his hand on this bread and somehow a packed lunch feeds a crowd of 5,000 plus. And there's more left over at the end. As in, this is God's creation out of nothing kind of power. Providing life in the wilderness, life in the face of death. And so who is this? Well, someone bigger than Moses and Elijah. As Peter puts it, this is the Christ of God. That is God's saviour king. The one with all of God's power and authority at his disposal. And the one who's using that power and authority to save people. The feeding of the 5,000 is a great picture of that. Who else has authority to reconstitute the molecules of bread except the creator? Who else would use that power, that infinite, limited, unlimited power, to save needy people? Well, God's promised saviour king. And actually, we've seen that all the way through Luke so far. We haven't got time to do a recap, but it's all been building to this point, this conclusion of who is Jesus. Do you remember when the disciples were about to die in the boat? The storm was crashing in, the, waves were, the water was filling in the boat, the sailors know we're going to go down pretty soon. 
And Jesus stands up and just tells the storm to stop. And they say, who is this? That the wind and waves obey him. Someone with authority over the created order. Well, no one but God's king. Or twice we've had in Luke when uh, Jesus says to someone, your sins are forgiven, the paralyzed man, the, the, um, the prostitute woman. Both times those around him asks, whoa, who has authority to do that? Who is this? Well, the answer is only God himself and his chosen king, the Christ, can do that. And the reality is the more we get in our heads that Jesus has the authority to offer salvation and the power to save people, the more we will depend on him as we go out on mission. See, in ourselves, we really do have nothing. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. It often kind of comes into my mind. You're talking to someone and you think, oh, I should tell them about Jesus or this is an opportunity to say something from the Bible. And there's just this doubt that comes into your mind of who am I? Like, what gives me the right? to suggest my views on this person? Well, the answer is nothing gives me the right, but Jesus has the right. He is God's king. He has all authority to say it how it is, to say that people need forgiveness in his name to be safe for eternity. He has the authority. Or then there's the other feeling, the, power, the powerless feeling. Have you ever had the kind of, you are, you are explaining about Jesus to someone and you just think to yourself, this sounds so weak. Like just some words about, about Jesus. How is that going to change someone's life? Well, I hope if you heard the testimony um, from Reuben recently, uh, I hope you're encouraged to, to see that it does really change people's lives. Jesus has the power to turn people around, to bring life out of death, to save people, a bigger rescue than even the rescue out of Egypt and all the manna in the desert. So as we close, I've made a little resolution for myself. Um, and to be honest, I think I might need to apply it in the next few days. Uh, when I'm feeling overwhelmed at my own weakness, when I feel that the scale of the task kind of in front of us, getting the news of forgiveness to the globe, when I feel overwhelmed at that, and the next time I'm feeling that and I'm tempted to say to Jesus, mission abort. Let's just take a pause. Let's just not, not go out with the gospel this week, this year, whatever, this decade. I don't have the resources. We don't have the resources. Well, my resolution is to ask myself the question that Jesus asked his disciples then, and he asks us now, this morning, who do you say I am? I wonder if we realize whose team we've joined the infinite resources that Jesus has and the power he works by his spirit to work through our hands and our mouths and our words to save people for all eternity. Who do you think I am? Let's pray. Our Father, you know our hearts. You know how we came into this building this morning. Some of us, no doubt, feel like we've only just survived the week and we've only just got here and we're only just hanging on. 
But we thank you that your word is clear again and again that the strength is not in us, but in you. And we do pray very much for each of us individually and for us as a church family that you would help us to keep joining in with your great mission to save, knowing that while we are weak, you are strong. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.